Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Innkeeper's Guestbook. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy. Union Inn, 1112, 11, 1114, 3rd Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Uh, steps to Nomagaidet Metro. Nice little walk to Union Station and nice leisurely jog to Capitol, Capitol Hill. Um, listeners at home, first off, I want to apologize if you happen to hear any jackhammering outside. It's because we've been under construction since 2017 taking away all of our parking just so we can upgrade the electric and get more residents in the area. Which I guess isn't an altogether bad thing, but you know, my apologies if you happen to hear a in the background. But I digress. Is your first time in DC? Oh no, my uh, my son li lives here and uh, we come up and see him at least a couple times a year. And uh, on this trip, uh, it was kind of special. We came up to celebrate my uh, first grandson's uh, first birthday. Congratulations. Yeah, on Saturday, yeah, it was great. All right. Yeah. Um, and so you are coming up from Florida. Yes, South Florida. All right, um, and uh, how do you like South Florida? I love it, It's I've been there for uh, 41 years. Oh, wow. Uh, went there right out of college, and um, uh, it's been great. You know, it's a great place to, uh, you know, to work and enjoy the outdoors, and and uh, it's 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 cool. So what's interesting is that once you become a Washingtonian, you really don't even see the monuments and everything that are out here. You know, even though it's beautiful and there are tourists all around. Do you find the same case with you down in South Florida with the beach? A little bit, yeah. Um, my wife and I walk at the beach, but don't really get in the sand and the surf and all that we can we do enjoy the beach especially my wife she does quite a bit uh but we definitely enjoy the outdoors spend a lot of time outdoors you know hot in the summertime but uh being pretty irregular exercises and stuff we tend to get out there in the morning and you know get it done and then uh the heat of the day we're working or inside you know all right, yeah, uh, and the the background of the ocean's got to beat the background of jackhammering on the street. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it's soothing. Um, now, you're originally from Dayton. Yeah, uh, yeah, grew up there on a dairy farm. Uh, really? Outside of, outside of Dayton. Okay, yeah, yeah. A, a dairy farm. A dairy farm. Right. Okay, so, I mean, so were you actively involved in the milking of cows? Well, my dad and a little bit my mom and my somewhat my older sis, siblings were mostly involved in that. But what I mean, I definitely did a lot of work on the farm. Uh, you know, we always had baby calves and, uh, you know, that was the younger kids responsibility to take care of the younger animals. And so and we had horses and sometimes we had chickens and all that. It So it was a. Uh, pretty good size operation. We had about a hundred head of cattle okay. total, and uh, a lot of work. My my parents, uh, I tell this often. My parents were married for twenty five years before they had children old enough so they could leave for a weekend. Wow! So they worked seven days a week for twenty five years straight. So it's a it's a pretty tough life. I can imagine. Now, how many acres does that equate to? A couple hundred. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and so, what is something about living, working on a dairy farm that you find interesting the average person doesn't know about? Hmm. Good question. 
Well, I'll tell you, when, when you're small and you have, uh, you know, the care and feeding of, you know, kind of small animals, you really learn responsibility early. Uh, that's, that's uh, so I felt like it affected me long term because I, uh, you know, I kind of had that, I had that responsibility. And, you know, the adults come in and they kind of check maybe once a week, but, but, you know, if you're sloughing off and not feeding them properly they can be very sick in a week's amount of time so you, you know the that was pretty pretty awesome uh, and just the other thing is uh, how hard the work is um, my parents would get up at like 4.30 every morning and not and you know come in for meals and stuff like that but and then we would not knock off till 6.30 or 7 at night. So it was, you know, 12, 13-hour days. And this is laborious it's, work, it's too. Tough. Yeah, it's it's a tough way to make a living. Yeah. yeah. So, For small family farms. So did you have a rooster that, that, that crowed in the morning to wake <laughs> everyone up? At times. At times we did. Really? Yeah, because we kept, we kept chickens at times. Okay. Not not always. But, yeah, yeah, and we, we had roosters. Yeah. So outside of milk, uh, what other uh, dairy product did your farm produce? Well, it was really just just milk. Uh, we produced, in terms of dairy products, we also uh, sold our male calves because you don't you don't need all that too many you know males around. You need just True. one or two bulls. True. Uh, but, but then we produced uh, a lot of uh, grain and stuff from the from the farm that we sold as well. Okay. So wheat and and sometimes we use corn mostly to feed the cows, but sometimes we sold corn and we always made hay to feed the feed the cows. So, uh, uh, like grain in silos and things. Like, would you take the grain to another silo, or do you have a silo on site? Well, the like the wheat and oats we would take to the local granary and sell it there. But we had uh, silos that we put chopped corn in. Called corn silage, and that we would feed to the cows, and so those are the you know the you know the tall uh, uh, silos that you know yeah we unloaded all winter long when the grasses were uh, not growing well and, and uh, okay um, so last question for the dairy farm before I move on okay um, you're interested in it oh yeah no so I can give a bit of background on that but uh, does the oatmeal taste better? <laughs> <laughs> like when you get the oats straight from the ground right there and you're making your oatmeal, does that taste better than the oatmeal that you find that you get in the stores? Yeah, we we really didn't make our own oatmeal. Okay. Cause, but I will tell you, oatmeal tastes a lot better with whole whole milk oh, yeah. than Thin with milk. skim milk. Yeah. And that's, we had whole milk every oh, meal. Oh, it's the milk, uh, huh? Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it, was just, it was just so rich, you know. Okay. Yeah, um, when I uh, went back to grad school a few years ago, I had an internship with a, a um, warehouser, which is a uh, timber reed. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I've always been interested in just uh, the agricultural timber side of things okay. from a real estate standpoint because that's yeah. where my background is. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, that's always interesting. So does your family still have the farm? No. Uh, you know, they're, my parents are, are have have died in my uh there was none of the children that were really all that interested in in farming so we 
you know, we just kind of sold the farm off as we were going away to college. And uh, we, we still, uh, I have two, a brother and a sister who still have very small farms, but uh, not the big dairy operation that we, we had when I was growing up. Okay. All right. Um, so you are a retired mechanical engineer. Yeah. Okay. So what did you work on? I worked in aerospace on jet engines and rocket engines for uh, 41 years. So, uh, How'd you get into that from a dairy farm? Well, um, going to high school, uh, my two or three of my teachers said, hey, you know what, you're pretty good in math and science. You should be an engineer. And I was like, uh, I'm not sure what that is. But so I started looking into it. And I went to Ohio State, who has a good engineering school. And um, uh, it was a good time. I graduated in 1977, long, long, long time ago. And um, a lot of good um, job offers were out there. And uh, the company that I went with in, in South Florida was uh, looked really exciting, you know, doing jet engines, you know. And it's uh, so that's, uh, that's where I went with. And so were you on the making of new jet engines or were you on the side of making the existing jet engines more efficient or that's that's a good question um uh, because it it uh shows you understand the product some so new new designs come along about every 10 years so it's it's really kind of most of what we do is make current products better um, you know, the especially military jet engines are really built for high performance, and so they're kind of on the edge of of breaking all the time. And so there's always a lot of component improvement that you can do to make them last longer. And 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 so um, we we did a lot of that. Although I was involved in a brand new designs too, but it was you know it, it, it probably. 70 80 percent making stuff better 20 30 percent brand new stuff okay so how much of that knowledge base translates to saying being a working on a car engine uh, I would say a lot um, because you know there are nuts and, and bolts and bearings and and seals and in and, and both and so if you're a good engineer you can work on a lot of stuff and and that's kind of that's kind of how it's worked out. Even houses and things like that. So if I put you in a warehouse with all of the different uh, trades that you would need to construct an engine, could you build the plans to make a car, or at least an engine of a car? That would that would be pretty difficult, I think, for for me at least. Maybe not everybody, but but. Uh, I mean, given enough time, heck yes. But mm-hmm. I, I, I would not, couldn't do it in a short amount of time. Gotcha. Well, you're better than me because I don't think I could do it in a lifetime. You know, um, so that's amazing. Um, so we talked a bit about uh, SpaceX mm-hmm. and uh, the Falcon Nine. What is most interesting about all of that? Well, I, I think what we're seeing with spacex is kind of the you know the new age of space exploration um you know he's elon has uh 
been done this company vertically integrated right where he makes the jet engine he makes the rocket he does the launch servicing stuff whereas the industry that that I grew up with in in, in rockets was a, one company makes the engine another po company makes the vehicle another company takes that and it might be a consortium of different companies and then they and then they launch it or the government launches it so Elon is doing all that he's he's doing it really cheaply uh really yeah a lot lot cheaper you know in the neighborhood of 20 percent what the old uh per you know if you if you look at space launch really everybody talks about uh how much does it cost to get a pound of satellite into low low earth orbit and so he's like uh 20% of what the old uh, paradigm was. Now, is that because he's more efficient, or is that because he was able to basically, or is that basically evidence of the fat on government contracts? Well, <laughs> I I hesitate calling it fat. He he's I think he's to actually take in a, a little bit lower technology, and but he's he's really taken advantage of some lower technology it's very uh it's it's relatively low performance t to its predecessors which is pretty unusual mostly most of the times it's always better and better and better technology to me he's he's a little bit lower technology but he's so i mean that's how he's gotten to be cheap and um uh and and this vertical integration so he in he he's you know, doing it all himself, one-stop shop, he he has been able to reduce his cost. So I think that's his big secret. I mean, I know he's still making money. And we, you know, the rocket business uh, in the past is always, you can't charge every penny you want. You know, these are government contracts, so they control how much money you, you make. You know, and they're always, you know, pretty uh, reasonable uh, profit margins, like, 10 15% profit margin. So it's nobody is out there really, you know, raping the government on these things. Okay. Um, so, whatever innovation that SpaceX is doing, is that coming pretty much at least 51% from Elon's brain? Or is he really, is there like a Tim Cook behind the scenes that is just as good and he has like a team of Tim Cooks? He does. Yeah, he's got a team i mean you got to give elon a lot of credit for kind of uh having the vision to put that team together i mean i think that team is his vision right okay. he deserves a heck of a lot of credit for all that but uh he's n not got all the good ideas he's got a team that's a lot of smart people the people that you know have worked in the rocket business for a long time people that you know that i know that are really smart people. So from a company size standpoint, is SpaceX considerably smaller, considerably larger, or around the same for the companies that you were, used to work for? I would say they're probably considerably smaller. Okay. I don't, I don't, couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but the impressions I get is he's doing a lot with a very quick and agile and very smart team. And uh, it's a pretty small team. 
and he and he works the heck out of them. That might be why he's able to get that twenty percent, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, if you were coming out of school now from Ohio State, and you had your pick of mechanical engineer companies, would SpaceX be on that list? They, they would definitely be on the list. What yeah. other companies would be on the list? Hmm. Well, I don't know. There are so many cool companies around, uh, like Uber and Google and people like that are self-driving cars I mean there are so many cool technologies around that I would try to uh, get into that and I think there's room a lot of this is you know kind of computer and electrical engineering but there's there's room for mechanical engineers everywhere you know everything's mechanical at some point Mm -hmm. okay Um, I think there was one other thing I was going to ask you Um, oh the woods Oh yeah. How's the restaurant? Yeah. So yeah, Tiger Tiger Woods has opened a a restaurant down in our area, and and uh, it's always crowded. He is he's doing well with this restaurant. Okay. I mean, it's it would, no matter what when you go in there, what day of the week, what time, it's it's crowded. It's uh, amazingly reasonably priced and pretty good food. My only. Uh, drawback is that it's it's very modern a lot of uh you know granite uh, a lot of high tops and granite uh walls and floors and modern lighting and it is it is so loud if you want to have an intimate conversation in there it's it's not the place but but it's kind of it's it's pretty cool yeah i wonder about that um in dc we have a height restriction and because of that height restriction um and people wanting to be lead certified the Mm -hmm. leaders in environmental um design um you have a lot of buildings that basically like big glass tissue boxes Mm -hmm. because they want to max out on the area that they can have because they only have so much and they put glass in because they get points for that for lead certification and talking with people specifically those that are in real estate or in architecture they're like this is a specific time specific architectural uh, 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 period where you're going to have a lot of the glass stuff and then say 20 years from now they'll look back at this period and say oh this is of the early 2000s what it looks like and I'm wondering when you say the design of Tiger Woods Place do you think they'll have to like redesign it in the next 5 to 10 years because of the modern look of it that it's so you know it will be dated I mean it's it's kind of sterile too that 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 whole, that whole look to me is is you know pretty sterile although you know it's 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 a great look but uh, I would rather have go to restaurants where you know you can sit and talk comfortably to, to the people across the table from you and and uh, so but on a Saturday night and you're you know wanting to want to party and you don't you care about yelling and the music's great uh, it's 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 a good place okay last question what's the dish that if we were to go to the woods that we should get actually i've had their their burgers are really really good they're you know they're kind of expensive for a burger i think they were like i think they were like under 20 but mm-hmm. uh but they were just outstanding and then uh they've got some really good apps um uh, the they seem like it's they tra- kind of trend toward beef a little bit, you know, and so uh, some good apps and the drinks are pretty, pretty healthy. 
Uh, so <laughs> it's not. A, it's really a pretty good place. He's done well, I think. Okay. All right. I'll definitely have to check that out. I'm down there. All right. You ready for seven questions? Yes. All right. Question number one. Book to add to the library. Yeah. So I just read a book um, that I, I thought was very compelling. The name of it is uh, How Democracies Die. Okay. And it's by, and I have to kind of look this up on my phone, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zimblatt. And there are a couple of, they're either Harvard or Yale history professors and studied government their, their whole careers. And their point is, you know, getting back to the title, how democracies die, is most people have this idea that governments are overthrown by, you know, violent, uh, some sort of a, a junta or something like that, where, you know, bad guys come in and, uh, you know, the military takes over or something. But in reality, most times it happens at the voting box where um, some demagogue comes in, he puts fear in people's hearts, mostly of, of the other, the immigrant or what have you, you know, that, and, and that whole... Uh, People vote away their rights over time, and and they and they allow one party to basically shut down the other party, and they uh, shut down the judiciary and the free press, and 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 they you know they agree to take their rights away, and um, it, you know it's it, people don't realize it when they're doing it, but they think they're they're making themselves safer, and they these authors came up with a lot of examples like Chavez and Venezuela, Putin and Russia and even Hitler. And then they made a lot of parallels to our country as it is today where, you know, Trump has never had anything good to say about the press. He would make the press uh, capable of being sued for libel, you know, which would shut down, essentially shut down the press because they would be in court all the time trying to defend themselves. He's, he's made fun of uh the judiciary told you know that you know told him that oh, these judges are bad they, he's called his uh his opponent in the presidential election a crook and said she should be in jail he, so he's he's taking that rhetoric of these demagogues and making it his own and it's and it's kind of frightening the other thing that his party has done is to um disenfranchise many people mostly disadvantaged people you know uh, that hey they don't they don't think they're going to vote their direction so don't let them vote and uh i i just think we're in a this book really made a compelling argument that the company our country is may going in a bad direction here and uh and it's we're repeating history if we don't stop it and i think the way to stop it is get out and vote most definitely um reminds me of that quote from uh episode three of star wars um when you know palpatine says you know the first galactic empire mm -hmm. and then uh what's her name padme says uh so this is how democracy dies yes. to thunderous applause right right yeah i i totally agree with that if you think back to hitler's reign you know he had he had a, a large majority. Yeah, and it was um, from the limited amounts that I've you know read, saw documentaries on it. It was somewhat slow. 
in the sense of i mean he first came on the scene in want to say the early to mid 30s Mm -hmm. yeah and you know he didn't invade poland until was it 39 or yes, 40 it was, or 41? It was, I think it was 39. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he basically took an entire decade to get to that point. Yeah. It wasn't like something that happened a year or two later, you know? Um, so, yeah. Um, yes, that's definitely a book that we need to get for the library. <laughs> Number two, podcast to subscribe to. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that you and I talked about before we did this is this was a, a, a question that uh, I am a big podcast listener. You know, I'm a pretty avid uh, exerciser, and I listen to them then. I, when I work around the house, I listen to them then when I'm in the car. And so I, I love podcasts, and so I was kind of excited to do this. Um, so I'm, I, although I am kind of a uh, uh, listen to the kind of the popular ones primarily, and, and, and one of the one I'm going to mention and get to is Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell, okay. which is very popular. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, though, uh, I he's probably put out about 30 podcasts. He's, he's going to start out season four here soon, I think. And I listen to them two or three times, which I don't ever listen to other podcasts two or three times. It's very compelling. He, in terms of subject matter, he's all over the map. And, but he likes to talk about... Um, well, sports and 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 race and government and the judiciary, kind of, kind of the um, uh, talks about, I think the disadvantage and justice and uh, and does it in a very very compelling way. And I think it's I think it's clearly the best podcast out there. All right, uh, any uh, podcasts of note that uh, you'd also put as you say top another three that you yeah know. yeah. Um, so, Freakonomics, really love Freak Freakonomics. That's, Got that one in my in my um yeah your my podcast role or yeah. podcast feed. Uh, this American Life. Got that uh, one too. Yeah, and um, one that, that maybe probably is probably not as popular um, is American History. Oh shoot, American History podcast is something besides that, but they go through, and they'll do like ten podcasts on the American Revolution or 10 podcasts about the civil rights movement and yeah. and it's it's really pretty well done too so. alright uh, let me make a couple for you as well um, Slow Burn Podcast have you seen, listened to that one? No I have not. Uh, so that's done by Slate Magazine okay. and it's kind of serialized like that where one whole season will cover a big political event Okay. so they only have two seasons the first season was on Watergate and the second season was on uh, Monica Lewinsky, uh, Bill, Clinton. Bill Clinton. Yeah, but it's really good, especially. So I didn't grow up during Watergate, so you know I've always heard it from a um, backwards looking right. back. Right. But I was I was alive during Monica Lewinsky, so it was like interesting to see how the things that I remember, especially growing up in the D.C. area, came up during the podcast, and it put them in a different context. You know, now that you mention it, those two subjects. I have I have heard of that podcast yeah. and and I have kind of been meaning to look. I knew it was yeah when you said slate and those two subject matters. I said oh yeah yeah I've been kind of meaning to listen to that. Yeah, um, the Daily, the New York Times. Yeah. I don't know if when I, when you came in you heard it me playing it um, oh. earlier. Yeah, but um, basically they cover. It's like every morning comes out 
uh, Monday through Friday, um, between 20 and 30 minutes, and they spend the bulk of the podcast, I want to say the first 20 minutes of the podcast, talking about one major story that's happened. Um, and they always go in depth. And you know the New York Times is so robust in terms of their reporting. They yeah. have somebody everywhere. Yeah. So they pretty much can give you a very, very, very good detailed synopsis of what happened as well as the context and that's, that's uh, insight. Um, last one I'd say is a long form podcast, but that's partly because I'm a podcaster myself and I think that the, the guys who do it, they're like A, A quality interviewers. They really like know how to interview. Very, very good. And so I listen to it kind of like as a, as a, um, for uh, professional yeah. development, yeah. Um, but also they bring on um, basically journalists, uh, 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 magazine luminaries, whomever, um, on their podcast. Basically, when that when some major event has happened, or they've written a long piece, okay, and they'll just talk with them on the on the podcast, and they'll a lot of times mention other pieces that they've done before. And so, so kind of you can loop back. And, yeah, exactly. And, and um, well, you know, you mentioned the great interviewers. The other one that I listen to pretty faithfully is uh, Terry Gross, the uh, Fresh Air. She's a fantastic interviewer. Yeah, and she has a lot of very interesting people uh, on that. You know, just you'll you love that. Definitely. Yeah. Next time you come up, you um, have you been to NPR's headquarters yet? I've been by it a number of times. Okay, so um, I believe if you go to npr.org slash tours, you can sign up for a tour. They happen every day at like 11 a.m. Really? Yeah, but a lot of times the week of, yeah. they're not, they already they're booked, booked up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, that's so a good, good, good idea. Next time you come visit your I son, check that. it out. All right, number three, something that you didn't know that you needed until you got it. Yeah, a little little cliche on this one, but I'm as I kind of mentioned earlier, a recent... Uh, grandfather uh to two grandchildren now i have one in florida and and one in dc congratulations and and uh i mean i was really looking forward to grandchildren but didn't really know how much i was gonna love them and need them until i got them you know it's just it's great i've always enjoyed my own children but the uh you know there was always that responsibility that went with it that you know that it, it, I don't know it's awesome responsibility right children when you're a grandparent it's all kind of one-sided it's all enjoyment <laughs> it's all the good stuff <laughs> yeah it's all the good stuff so that that has been really really special and uh, and and you know we're I'm getting my oldest one is only 20 months old so I've got a long long road ahead uh, of enjoyment with those those two that's great that's really great all right number four uh bucket list place to travel there's a place that you've been that you recommend for the listeners to add to their bucket list yeah i thought about this one a lot um i i uh i would say rome uh you know there are prettier cities than rome and 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 maybe more things to do than rome but i tell you rome is uh, the cradle of Western civilization, you know, we get so much of our language from from Latin and our architecture, our form of government was all started there. And when I was there, you know, spent just really like uh, about a week there, uh, like it seemed like around every corner was, oh my God, I've been hearing about this 
this thing my whole life and here it is right in front of me and it's 2500 years old and it just just it's just pretty mind-blowing so i would say rome was probably the m- most interesting place i've been okay uh, and good food too oh and, and and excellent food yeah left that out that was pretty <laughs> obvious i left that out well you, you know the first place i ever ate truffle oil infused pasta was around mm-hmm. oh my god yeah. that was incredible yeah, it changed your life it, it changed <laughs> my life exactly yeah all right uh number five uh 50 mile detour restaurant yeah uh yeah on this on the subject of food um so there are two restaurants in malibu just north of la that i have literally gone 50 miles out of my way to go to them and that one is gladstones and the other's is Dukes and they're both touristy places and but the food is really good but not the best but the views I mean Mm. we're looking right out of the Pacific and watching sunsets and the waves crashing and birds seabirds diving I mean I've never um, been to a restaurant with such spectacular views as as those those two and so that those literally have gone 50 miles out of my way for those so are they next to each other for pretty close they're just a couple miles down the road from each other okay so um if you are coming up from la which one do you hit first uh gladstones okay. it's right it's there's a canyon road i think just it's malibu canyon road mm-hmm. that it kind of intersects the, the uh, pacific coast highway and it's right there uh on the you know west side and then and then dukes is just a couple miles more up up the road, up Pacific Coast Highway. All right. So if you want to get a um, ocean side or ocean front seat at one of these restaurants during sunset, do you have to make reservations like a month in advance or something? Or I, I don't think we ever did. There's there, uh, Gladstone's especially is a, is a great big restaurant, and it, you know, of course, if you go there Saturday night or something, I'm not sure they take reservations. I don't think they did the last time. We last times we were there, but um, but if you go any weeknight, uh, it 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 shouldn't be a big problem. Okay. Yeah. The only trouble is if you go during the winter time, you probably don't want to sit outside. I mean, it it gets oh, it get, it get it, cold. It can go get really cold. Although they have heaters and and, and stuff, but uh, you know, Pacific Coast uh, is like a great big air conditioner like water so cold the what and the wind coming off of it it just it'll just go through you yeah can imagine all right number six your number one skill yeah uh so this is um what i've learned what i've honed over the years I, i i guess i would say i was a manager in in engineering for uh over 20 years and at first i didn't do it very well and i but i kept at it and uh, I, I think I'm a pretty good leader. And, uh, and the way I think, if, if you think of yourself as a leader, you gotta ask yourself two questions. Is one, are you, are you completing things that your leader wants you to, you and your team to complete? First question, most important one. This, but the second one is, do your team members wanna work for you? You know, do, are they, do they stick around? And, and I think over the years, you know, I feel like I've uh, I've been able to accomplish both of those things pretty well. Um, I think with the engineers, we have to invest in them so much. So I really concentrated on trying to keep them happy and 
and and learn what they wanted to do with their careers and be a little conspirational with them in terms of okay well let's sit down and we're going to talk at least once a month about where you want to go and what you want to do and then let's let's figure out a game plan for you and what you need to to uh, do to accomplish that and I think that really helped people feel like hey this guy's on my side and we're and and uh, we made a lot of good stuff happen for for people and so I think uh, leadership is that honed skill for me all right and you also have a a very calming voice too so I'm sure that helps as well thanks uh last one uh number one talent yeah so uh being good at math and science and physics and all that I think my innate talent is kind of that engineering so I got super lucky in terms of of finding a career area that I was kind of naturally uh, had the talent to do and uh, so I, I think that's a huge blessing to you know find something you you love doing and something you're also pretty good at doing right and and uh, so I, I, I think that's the case. Uh, I kind of tell myself I'm not the maybe the most creative person you ever run into, but I know a good idea when I see one, and and I I can, uh, you know, rally the team around to go. Okay, we need to go in this direction. You know, the, to to make the product better, and and uh, done that many 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 times. All right. Is are there any um, specific projects that? Uh stick out that you're like yeah i was really proud of that well um i was involved in the space shuttle program okay for a number of years and uh when our equipment first launched on the space shuttle way back in 95 it was uh yeah it was probably the high highlight of my career because we'd been working on that hardware solid for for 10 years to make get run it through its paces to design it and run it through its paces to make convince NASA who's a tough customer that it's ready and the astronauts are going to be safe and uh, it it was a long end of a kind of an end of a long journey at least you know that hey we could say we are definitely ready and we're keeping the astronauts safe with that with that hardware so that was that was great all right um I actually had another question too, um, with regards to the space stuff that I thought about earlier, but forgot. Now I remember. Um, are, do we have a lot of space shuttle launches now that people are putting satellites, like for internet purposes and everything? Like, do we have a lot, like a lot of space shuttle takeoffs just to low mm-hmm. orbit, or is it only still? No, so this, yeah, the space shuttle's been shut down since. Oh gosh, I want to say. It, it was several years it's five or six years at least mm-hmm. so we haven't been doing any space shuttle launches so how we get astronauts to the international space station is actually russian launches so use so but one of the things that spacex is going to be doing is to develop a their own launch system to put people to space station and low earth orbit and, and so forth so and and also there are other uh, more conventional uh, uh, delivery systems. Lockheed Martin is working on one that 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 is going to put people back. So we're we're working on 
United States being able to launch people but uh, into space. But right now, we rely on the Russians to do that. So a uh, little bit of embarrassment there that we let that, we kind of let that happen. Yeah. So, um, but in terms of like launching a satellite, let's say I was a billionaire. Yeah. And I was like, I want to have my own cell phone. Yeah. And I develop a, a satellite that, well, probably need three satellites because you always need to be able to get to it. But I have three satellites that I want to launch mm-hmm. to be able to connect to my phone okay. so I don't have to worry about Comcast or Verizon or anybody. How difficult is that to do? Yeah, so we, United States has uh, unmanned, a, a good amount of unmanned capability. You, SpaceX is one, but uh, United Launch Alliance uh, has two ma- big rockets, heavy heavy launch rockets that could do it. So you, you would contract with one of those launch providers and they would charge you somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred million dollars to per per it might be i don't know it's 80 million spacex is lower Mm -hmm. but depend on you know how much lift how big your satellite is how much lift capability you need it makes it more expensive and 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 you're right you would probably in order to launch a you know, a network of satellites to do uh, satellite phone coverage, you would need more than one. Yeah. yeah. M- maybe many more than one, depending on how much coverage you yeah. need. So it's pretty expensive. I mean, that's why your saddle, your cell phone doesn't really work on satellites unless, unless you know, you're talking to somebody overseas. They're all just l- local cell phone towers yeah. that are, you know, relaying... A message your, across to, to, to boom, another boom, to boom, another boom. right yeah and then there's one main one that didn't goes up to the satellite I believe right well it, it, you know honestly I'm not exactly sure how to do that but I mean yeah if you're talking to somebody overseas it's it's going through a satellite or or two or many potentially but if you're talking across somebody across town it's just going through towers okay last question I promise is there a lot of space junk in lower Earth orbit oh yeah oh yeah. Because there's a um, a NASA organization that really, you know, is constantly watching wherever there are people in in low Earth orbit, and that's mainly you know the International Space Station, and saying, okay, you're gonna need to change your orbit a little bit to avoid this this big chunk. I th- I forget how many there are neighborhood of 200,000 or something that they think is large enough to do damage to uh, people in people in space that they track on a continuing basis. Sounds like a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know we need a big uh, low earth orbit uh, a vacuum cleaner up there. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was very enjoyable, Freddie. Thank you for having uh, me. And thank you for joining. Um, I'm Innkeeper Freddie. Thank you so much for joining us with the podcast, and we will see you next week.